Freedom, man. That's what it's all about. You've got to groove on freedom, like the good book says. listening to what on earth is happening this show will discuss the topics of human consciousness mind control natural law the occult and all issues that affect the freedom of the people of earth what on earth is happening will endeavor to shine light upon the darkness of our world and to offer empowering solutions to the problems we face as humanity approaches its critical moment of choice. And now, here is your host, Mark Passio. Welcome one and all. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. The network's website, republicbroadcasting.org. Today is Saturday, October 25th, 2014. This show is, of course, live every Saturday evening here on RBN from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Time. That's 9 p.m. to midnight Central Time. We have a great show lined up for you here tonight. We're going to be continuing to present the extended version of the Cosmic Abandonment presentation that I gave back in late 2013. Cosmic Abandonment is a presentation that explores the connection between what I refer to as the interference theory of human origins and the current human condition. Tonight on the show, we're going to have a little bit of fun, and we're going to uh, discuss some movie allegories, some works of fiction that actually tell a very powerful and important part of the story of the real origins of humanity, the interference theory of human origins, um, through Hollywood fiction. And I'm going to discuss several movies and talk about some of the connections that they have with uh, the events that occurred in the ancient past on Earth. So that's coming up on this edition of What on Earth is Happening. And then, maybe about halfway through the program or so, um, I will uh, start taking your calls on any topic you want to explore, including cosmic abandonment or anything else, because there are never any taboo topics on what on earth is happening and never will be. So I'll give the call-in number right here at the top of the show, and uh, people can get in the caller queue if they wish to. So the call-in number is 800-313-9443. Once again, the call-in number to join us here on What on Earth is Happening, 800-313-9443. Just a couple of brief event announcements. The Free Your Mind 3 conference is coming up in 
early 2015. You can check out more information about this great forthcoming conference at the conference website, freeyourmindconference.com. I am um, scheduled to be one of the featured speakers at the Free Your Mind Conference. Really looking forward to it. It's going to be held just outside of Philadelphia uh, this year, and uh, that's all I'll say for now. I'll let uh, you know people go to the conference website to get details, which will be forthcoming. So, Free Your Mind 3 coming up in April of 2015. The website, freeyourmindconference.com. Definitely check it out. Um, I want to let people know uh, that uh, I am working with an editor on a What on Earth is Happening book. I've talked about this briefly on past shows. Um, This individual has done absolutely phenomenal work uh, helping me to prepare the material for this book. And um, he sent me a draft, and I've been looking it over and having a couple of people look it over, and it's coming along really great. And uh, I'm really excited that uh, I think um, probably by early next year, hopefully by the time the Free Your Mind conference rolls around, or although I don't want to make any promises, uh, the book will be actually, uh, you know, published. I'm going to self-publish it and, uh, you know, put it out there for anybody who wants to uh, pick up a copy. So, um, you know, I just want to let people know a little progress report there that it's going really, the book is coming along really well and uh, I'm really looking forward to putting that out sometime early next year if everything goes according to plan. Uh, With that said, uh, I also want to mention that uh, there is a donation button on the left-hand side of the whatonearthishappening.com website. If you feel that you have received value from the information that I've presented and shared on uh, this radio show and on my website, you can feel free to make a purely voluntary donation to help support my work so that I can continue it into the future. And, uh, you know, don't you know the new thing, the new attack when, you know, people, when absolute shills and, you know, people who uh, are brain damaged can't attack the information that you put out uh, and they can't put a chink in, uh, you know, what other people mentally, uh, you know, think of you as because you do hold some integrity and you do stand in truth and you do stand in courage and you do keep speaking the truth out into creation for other people to hear the very last thing people can attack you on is, oh, you're accepting donations. You know, that makes, that makes everything, you know, all my work somehow invalid, or that makes me some kind of a shill because, uh, I open up for, uh, you know, other people's generosity should they want to voluntarily give it. I mean, this is the most nonsensical notion that I've ever personally heard of, but, you know, for people who, you know, fall into these kind of logical fallacies, it doesn't really surprise me. There's a lot of people out there with completely burnt brains. So, um, you know, that's all I really have to say about that. And, um, you know, I've already spent too much time even, uh, even bring mentioning it or bringing it up. I guess I'll be, you know, doubly or triply a shill by, um, mentioning that I do still have some what on earth is happening t-shirts. Um, I have not put anything for sale up on my website ever up to this point. Um, when the book comes out, uh, I'm obviously not going to be able to just give books away because I'm going to have to put out a significant amount of money to, uh, press the book on my own to actually, you know, self publish it. So of course the physical copies I will have to sell, 
but um, I'm going to arrange somehow putting out um, uh, electronic copies of it for uh, extremely, extremely uh, inexpensive prices. Maybe I'll just do any any kind of a voluntary donation for the book. We'll get you an e-copy of it, you know, and, you know, that'll be as close to free as I could put it out there. And, you know, I don't care if anybody wants to share it with whoever they want. Of course, I want it to be shared. I want the information out there. So, um, you know, I'll probably do something like that with an e-copy of it once it does get published. And, um, of course, you know, I'll have to charge a small amount for the actual physical book, uh, you know, because I can't just press those and give them away. I'm, I don't have that kind of money to do that. But, um, you know, I also have some t-shirts that are left over from, uh, I printed up a bunch of t-shirts for the Connecticut seminar, the Demystifying the Occult seminar. And I want to really thank everybody who attended that seminar. And uh, the t-shirts actually sold very well. It was like a hot item at the table, uh, you know, when we tabled some merchandise there. And, um, you know, uh, uh, people seem to really like the design. It has the What on Earth is Happening Earth design on the front, uh, you know, with the website and then, uh, you know, with the, uh, the blue rays coming off of the earth. And then on the back, it has the one great work seal, uh, that I kind of designed, uh, based on the, uh, the, you know, the classic all seeing eye design, uh, the reverse of the great seal, but it says one great work, truth, love, freedom. And then there's the phrase, uh, there is only two mistakes one can make on the path to truth, not starting and not going all the way. So, We'll continue on the other side of this break, folks. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. Before the break, I was uh, just letting everyone know, um, you know, uh, I was basically continuing my shill activity because uh, I'm going to mention some merchandise for like the first time since I've, uh, you know, pretty much come out and started publicly speaking. Uh, We printed some what on earth is happening t-shirts uh i put out maybe about a little over fifteen hundred dollars to have these professionally silk screened they came out really nice and uh we brought them to the connecticut seminar it was the first time that i've ever had any t-shirts pressed you know the uh idea here was um you know let's get some promotion going for the website and you know a nice t-shirt might get some people talking could you know bring up the topic of, you know, kind of what this radio show talks about and, you know, what the website gets into and turn some people onto it. And that was the intent. So we printed some up. They sold really well. People really seemed to like the the design. And uh, I may uh, offer these on the website. Um, you know, people could let me know what they think of that. Or maybe, you know, I'll just put an email link or something like that. And you can email me and ask me how you can get a hold of a copy. 
I'll uh, you know figure out exactly how I want to work that. But um, you know I'll probably make some of these publicly available because. I do think they came out really nice. I think people will like the design. Maybe I'll uh, take a photo of them and, you know, put it up on the on the radio show next week or, you know, put it up somewhere on the site next week. But um, just wanted to mention that, that I'll probably be doing that in the near future. And, uh, of course, that makes me an absolute uh, fraud. So, you know, just so everybody's clear on that. Um, seriously, though, let's jump into the... Uh, the topic, the material for tonight's broadcast. And as always, I want to direct everybody's attention if they're listening live to the whatonearthishappening.com radio show page. You go to whatonearthishappening.com, click the radio show tab. Uh, as always, um, underneath the player, uh, when I'm live on the air, there are images for the show. And underneath that, you'll see the cosmic abandonment slides. If you're listening with the podcast, this is podcast 173, and uh, the slides of, are, of course, posted with each podcast. There's also a um, zip archive link where you can actually download a uh, zipped archive of a zipped folder of all of the images if you want to open them up just locally on your computer. That's my recommendation, probably the easiest way to do it. You have all the images numbered in one folder. So um, we're going to be starting on image number 157 this evening, which is uh, simply the section. It begins the section of the Cosmic Abandonment presentation called Allegories. So I'll just start by defining what an allegory is because, you know, some people may not be familiar with that term. I, I would guess any kind of longtime listeners, of course, are familiar with what an allegory is. It's something I talk about a whole lot. An allegory is a story, a poem, a picture, a symbol of some kind that can be interpreted. It, it's an encoded story, poem, picture, or symbol. It's uh, uh, something that is encoded, and it can be decoded or interpreted in a certain way to reveal a hidden meaning, to reveal some hidden understanding. And usually that hidden meaning or hidden understanding is a moral lesson of some kind. It can also be um, hidden events that people want to explain in a covert way without coming out and actually saying, you know, these are the names, these are the dates, these are the people involved, etc. Um, you know, so they'll uh, change the name, but the story is basically the same. So this is what we're going to be talking about uh, tonight on the show. Allegories that deal with the cosmic abandonment topic, that deal with the interference theory of human origin, that beings came to our planet in the very ancient past and did some sort of manipulation to humanity or created humanity in a manipulated way for their own purposes and wanted to use this planet and people for their own resources and their own reasons, their own agendas. That's the general thesis. People have called this, you know, uh, I call it interference theory. Uh, people have called it intervention theory. Uh, you know, I accept that as a uh, name for this topic, but uh, like I say, like I've said, it kind of like doesn't really do it justice because it almost sounds like, oh, you're doing an intervention of some kind. Well, that could be helpful. You know, interference means you're standing in somebody's way of where they want to go. You know, you're, you're blocking them. You're, you're preventing their forward progress. That's why I, I prefer the term interference theory, but it's also been called ancient astronauts theory, you know, things like that. Uh, alien involvement in human uh, evolution, etc. 
You can call it really whatever you want. It's all the same basic concept. Uh, and many um, fictional movies, fictional stories have dealt with this theme. Again, in an encoded way. And you have to understand the general background story that we've gone over in the first part of this extended presentation, which was called the story of the human past. You need to understand the basic outline of that story in order to understand how these allegories are uh, retellings of that story of our past. So, you know, of course, if you're not familiar with that, you want to look at the researchers I talked about last week on the program and listed, and I've gotten some good feedback about that. People seem to be putting that resource list to good good use. They like the way I, you know, provided some basic links so that people can just click on, you know, to do a web search or to do a YouTube video search or to do an Amazon book search, uh, you know, so that people can do this type of research on their own. And, you, you know, you'll discover so many other researchers connected with this field when you research the ones that I uh, put out there. So um, it's, it seems like uh, that was a, uh, it worked out the way I, I, I linked that stuff and people are getting some good use out of that and I'm glad to hear that. So um, let's start in with some of these allegories. And I, look, I'm, I'm sure I've missed some. I'm sure people will have others. You know, there's a couple that I am going to mention that aren't on the slides. I didn't make slides to to represent them or, you know, I, I became aware of them after this presentation had already been built. I'll probably add in some slides down the road when I refine or enhance this presentation. But uh, for now, we're just going to touch on a few. And then we go when we go to the phones, if you want to bring up any that you think uh, allegorically deal with this topic, you, you know, you're free to do so. So uh, the first one that I'm going to talk about on slide number 158 is probably my personal favorite movie of all time. It's the um, cult classic They Live, starring Roddy Piper. It was made by uh, the director John Carpenter. And uh, I'm going to tell a little bit of an anecdotal story about um, my meeting with Roddy Piper in a little bit. But let's talk about the movie first. Um, <clears throat> they Live, I believe, came out in 1985, or, or was it 80, 88? Um, I'll, I'll look up the date, but um, essentially, it's, um, it was 88. And uh, essentially, um, it's about uh, a man who is uh, pretty poor. He's looking for work. He's out of work. And, you know, he finds some work as a uh, construction worker. And very synchronistic experiences lead him through kind of living in a, uh, a tent city to become aware of some sort of an underground resistance movement that has together detected the presence of alien beings that are already in control of the planet, that are already in control of the earth. They are, you know, the so-called elite of the earth. They're the people who are the, quote, movers and shakers. They're uh, the people who own all the corporations, all the money, all the businesses, the police, the military, etc. Politics. So we'll pick this storyline up on the other side. Stay with us, everyone.
don't dare speak There's a wall between us And a river so deep We keep pretending That there's nothing wrong that's right, the code of silence can't go on, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we're going to broadcast the truth out into the universe until it is heard, understood, integrated, acted upon, and sets this world free. Let's uh, continue talking about some of the fictional allegories that deal with the interference theory of human origins as part of the extended cosmic abandonment presentation. We were talking about the movie They Live starring Roddy Piper, a cult classic by John Carpenter from 1988. Uh, the Piper character, his name is Nada. Uh, very interesting that that kind of is a uh, slang word for nothing. Uh, you know, he's like the, the spirit, you know, who's going through, through life, going through the uh, world of incarnation here on earth and, you know, discovering hidden truths. So uh, he comes across this resistance movement. Uh, that is poor and trying to put the word out about aliens who are present in the midst of people. You know, this could be a um, allegory regarding psychopaths. And you'll understand that that's in many cases, that's what these people are talking about because, uh, you know, that they're the progeny of these beings that were here from thousands of years ago. They interbred to try to keep the genetics as quote pure as possible you know as they saw it and therefore they may have uh you know kept a lot of psychopathy going and or in many cases again i talked about psychopathy primary psychopathy in particular uh having an origin in the genetic manipulation that was done to early humanity and then therefore psychopaths want to continue to interbreed those traits those, those genetic characteristics among them to kind of keep it in the family and keep their ruthlessness intact so that they can stay on top, so to speak, to, that they can keep these dominating and controlling aspects, you know, that come with the concept, of, that come with the, the disease, I should say, of psychopathy. So um, you can interpret the allegory that way, or you can just see it as, uh, you know, these beings represent, uh, you know, on at face value what uh, they're portrayed as, non-human entities, or perhaps per possessed souls, beings that have been inhabited spiritually, you know, uh, and have been taken over, you know. Uh, another movie I, I'll just briefly mention, you know, has a concept like this, is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, that that, that uh, I didn't include a slide for that either, but that has a lot of these same themes in it, where people are being taken over, and you know they're not acting you know as normal individuals, and these are consciousnesses from elsewhere uh, coming to take the planet, coming to basically inhabit the the, the bodies of the people of of Earth, and and ultimately take everything. Um, they live you know works with this alien theme, and uh, the goal. What, what they realize, uh, this underground resistance movement that the Piper character Nada becomes uh, involved with, uh, what they realize they have to do is stop the mind control signal that is going out to the population through the television, the radio, the newspapers, subliminal messages, everywhere he looks with these glasses that this underground resistance movement has developed that they call Hoffman lenses 
these uh, black sunglasses can allow you to see all the subliminal mind control that these beings are putting out to keep the population asleep and continue to rule over them. So it's a brilliant allegorical film. It's uh, kind of B-movie-ish in many ways, and that's, you know, absolutely, I have no problem with that. As a matter of fact, I kind of think that lends to the character or charm of some of these movies. A lot of people who want to watch this as strictly fictional movie buffs, <laughs> bad idea, because you're not watching this for the entertainment value so much as you are for the encoded message. If you understand it's an allegory, try to reserve your judgment about, well, how were the effects or how was the acting, okay? Movie making aside, you have to be willing to suspend that critical aspect of looking at a lot of these films and just watch them to look, to hear and understand the message that's contained within them. A lot of people can't do that you know, unfortunately, very unfortunately, they see a movie as just a piece of entertainment value, just a, a movie, just something, a story somebody's just trying to creatively tell. And in many cases, that's definitely not the intent behind the creators of film. They're really putting out a spiritual message in many ways. And uh, what Carpenter is clearly putting out here is, you know, what he thinks of our current situation in the world as being ruled by these sick psychopathic people. And uh, uh, the, the whole goal is shut the signal off, get the television message out of people's heads, get the propaganda out of their heads. Once you shut that signal off by their very nature, they'll be open-minded more to the truth. It's like I said, you know, the whole mind control signal is like the sorcerer's um, dissociative datura, this plant that is used by South American sorcerer shamans to basically dissociate people from reality and basically then, uh, you know, keep them under their thumb and keep them under control and keep them in a, a hypnotized type state. That's what the television does. And the message of this is until we turn off the poison signal, we interrupt the poison signal, we're not going to really make, be making much headway. And the, the main character has to actually sacrifice himself at the end of the film in order to do that. So, uh, you know, themes of, of sacrifice are profound in the film as well. I cannot recommend strongly enough to anyone who has not seen this film to watch it immediately, if not yesterday, okay? I mean, that's, I, I can't give any stronger recommendation for, for a film. So, uh, for those who are familiar with it, you understand why I recommend it so highly. For those who are not familiar with it, you need to watch it right away. Um, I just want to uh, briefly talk about my personal uh, meeting or encounter with Roddy Piper when he came to Philadelphia. And um, uh, it was at um, a movie screening for the 25th anniversary of the film They Live. I saw They Live in the theaters on the first night of its release. And people will say, well, why would you go see this film on the first night of its release? You, uh, you know, I, that was 1988. What was I? I was, uh, um, that would make me 14 years old at the, at the time, okay? So why would I, as a 14-year-old boy, want to have gone to see this, this film? And the answer is because I was a big fan of Roddy Piper growing up because when I grew up, I was into pro wrestling. Yes, I've said it live on the air. You know, uh, uh, people will probably, uh, you know, have lots of things to say uh, for that revelation. But uh, 
uh, I was big into wrestling when I was young, as uh, are many, uh, you know, people. So, um, I uh, I liked Piper in particular uh, from the very first moment I I saw him wrestle and saw you know do his his uh, you know stage persona, and <clears throat> that's why I wanted to see the film because when he became a Hollywood actor, I wanted to see you know what was he going to do, what kind of movies was he going to make. And I didn't understand the film at the time, of course. You know, not many people did. And a lot of people still don't. But I went to see it, and I really enjoyed it. And um, uh, so, of course, after really, you know, becoming awake and understanding what the film was really about, I saw it with completely uh, fresh and open eyes and saw its brilliance uh, by John Carpenter. Uh, so I went to the 25th anniversary screening, which was... Uh, very uh, awesomely presented here in Philadelphia when I saw that, you know, that was the the 25th anniversary screening was going to be in only a couple of limited places. New York was one, Philadelphia was one, and I think there was a couple other cities, if that. Uh, I was really excited to to see that. So uh, uh, Barb and I did get tickets with some friends and went to the the screening. And uh, there was a there was a um, picture signing session with Piper, a kind of meet and greet afterward. And we got kind of held up. We, we had tickets for the meet and greet as well, but we kind of got held up talking amongst ourselves and doing some other things. And we ended up being the last people in line. Liter- I was literally the last person in the line for the meet and greet. There was no one behind me. I was the last person in line. Uh, so, you know, he was... Uh, you know, still there, and uh, I had noticed even up to the very end, he was very cordial, very um, gracious to the people who came to for the meet and greet and the autograph signing. You know, with his picture uh, that they had given out, and um, you know, I was pretty impressed by that because it had to be a long time that we were standing a couple of hours at least standing in that line to to you know go up, meet him, shake his hand, talk to him a little bit, and get the photo that they had given out to all the people who had bought meet and greet tickets autographed. And uh, I thought that was pretty cool of him that you know even till the very end he remained you know really happy and uh, very glad to, to meet and greet the people who came to see the film. So I'll pick up that little anecdotal story uh, after this break. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to What on Earth is Happening here on RBN. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening here on Republic Broadcasting. I'm your host, Mark Passio. I was giving uh, a little anecdotal story about the uh, time I met Roddy Piper um, last year. And I was saying how uh, cordial he was, even though he had spent you know, a couple of hours signing autographs and talking with people, uh, even down to the very last person in line, which was me. And 
when I got up to him, you know, I gave him the photo to sign, and I also handed him my card, uh, my whatonearthishappening.com business card. And he said, what's this? And I said, "Uh, that's the real sunglasses. And if you go to that site, you can put them on. And he said, okay, uh, I'll I'll definitely do that and I'll check it out. I'm open-minded to hear what people have to say. I said, awesome. And um, uh, I, you know, shook his hand and I said, you know, uh, at this screening, you know, you, you were, you know, you came out on the stage and you talked a little bit about the making of the film and how it was to work with the other actors and the directors and everything like that. And, you know, how the film blew up and, you, you, know, you know, you didn't expect it to get as huge as it did and to become a kind of an underground cult classic uh, film. And, I, you know, it was really awesome what you came out and said and you know it was very interesting to hear but I said you didn't really get into what the film was really about you know uh, philosophically and what the message that Carpenter was putting out there was and he said yeah I've kind of stayed away from doing that uh, up to this point and I said well have you ever considered um, you know, really coming forward and talking about what this film is really about because you're a very charismatic individual and people would be willing to listen to you. You know, they know you as a public figure, you know, and um, uh, if you did something like that, it would probably be very well received. And he said, well, you know, I appreciate you saying that and I appreciate the vote of confidence. And he said, there are some other people who have been asking me to do that as well. And I've been just, you know, talking with them and considering it and kicking around the idea a little bit, but I haven't really decided to go ahead with it. And, and I, you know, kind of tried to like give him that little nudge or that push. And I said, well, you know, I think you would be awesome at it because again, you're very well liked and it would probably be a natural thing. You're, you're, you already, you know, were always, you know, great at speaking when you were in wrestling. And, you know, this would kind of be a natural extension to that, except you would be putting out really valuable information. And as again, a public figure that is charismatic and well liked, people would be open-minded to hear what you have to say. And uh, I could tell he really, you know, thought about what I was saying and uh, was, you know, again, very nice and very cordial about it. Shook my hand again. We said goodbye. And, you know, that was my my little encounter with him. Uh, so uh, I didn't really think too much of it after that. And again, I'm not going to take credit for this. I'm just going to throw it out there that possibly I may have had something to do with it. But um, very shortly after that, maybe within about a month or so after that encounter, um, Alex Jones actually brought Roddy Piper onto his show and interviewed him, and he talked about all the themes that, you know, wherein they live and his whole mental, you know, uh, view of the world in the modern day and, you know, how it was really going and uh, uh, did a great job, I thought. And um, he was uh, kind of influenced to do that by Sean Stone, uh, you know, the uh, director Oliver Stone's son, who you know, knows Piper, is friends with him, and I believe uh, Jesse Ventura and and his son Tyrell, and then, uh, you know, they know Alex, of course, and he brought them on his show, which I thought was a great interview. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I'm not going to say I, you know, made that happen, but maybe, who knows, maybe he took to heart something that I said, you know, I'd like to think of it that way anyway, and uh, hopefully kind of, uh, you know, encouraged him a little bit, if nothing else. So that's my little anecdotal story about my uh, my meeting with Piper during the uh, 25th anniversary They Live screening here in Philadelphia. It was very cool. Um, let's move on to the next slide, 159, and take a look at a couple other allegorical films uh, dealing with... Um, Men who want to be gods, which is what this whole interference theory of human origins is really about, beings uh, claiming godship over other beings. And um, there's no better example of this than the uh, old story by Rudyard Kipling, The Man Who Would Be King, that was made into a uh, Hollywood film back in the 70s, starring Sean Connor and Michael Caine. Great film about, uh, actually very interesting that the... Uh, they're masons in this movie as well, you know. So the idea of secret societies and uh, you know hidden knowledge and, and occultism is brought into the film that way. And uh, the one character wants, of course, the one brother, or you know, uh, you know, you could look at them as two soldiers on a mission. Uh, one of them wants to stay and rule a less technologically advanced civilization that they are thrust into, and the other one just wants to do what he has to do and move on and get out of there and go back home. Uh, it, this is the veiled story of the brothers um, Enki and Enlil, of course. Um, Enki being the being that wanted to create us, Enlil the being that wanted to rule over us mercilessly once we were created because he looked at us as sort of an abomination against nature that had been made and disagreed with the whole plan to genetically manipulate an entire race of beings. Uh, these themes are heavily overlapping in this throughout. And again, with these films, you know, it's not an identical telling of the tale. There's a lot of themes in it. And some of the, there's a lot of different themes in it. You know, some movies have some themes with the, uh, the, the story that we've laid out here on this uh, extended presentation. And many other researchers have talked about and written books on and made documentaries and, uh, you know, uh, t television series, etc. So you're not going to see every film containing every element. You know, they're they're scattered throughout all of these films. And again, the other part of this is you have to take into consideration that possibly the universe is at work here. That literally the underlying intelligence, creation and will of the universe itself is at work dynamically in this dynamic form of energy and flow that people have referred to as synchromysticism. And we've talked about this on the show in the past many times. Synchromysticism is kind of how information gets populated into fictional stories through the creative process. Now, some people will call this wrongly, in my opinion, predictive programming. Predictive programming is what people think, well, they're putting out these things deliberately to try to get people to have this in their subconscious mind. I really don't see these allegorical works of fiction so much as predictive programming. Now, I'm not saying that none of that exists. I, I definitely think it does exist. But these types of films that are trying to, that are putting out elements of the truth, okay, I don't think it's predictive programming. I think it is 
an example of synchromysticism in many ways, where the creative process perhaps opens people up to information that is simply all around us in what people have referred to as, you know, the uh, underlying field of intelligence, you know, the unified field, the Akash, whatever you want to refer to it as, you know, this is what, you know, certain people with psychic capabilities have been able to pick up on. Um, this is what uh, people I feel tap into through the extreme creative process of something like writing or directing a film. And um, it, so it doesn't have to be conscious knowledge necessarily on the part of a lot of these filmmakers, although in many of the cases, I do believe that it is conscious knowledge. So with that being said, there's a film uh, that's very similar, almost an identical retelling of The Man Who Would Be King in uh, animated, a, dis uh, a, a type of, like, it's, I don't think it's Disney, I think it was DreamWorks, if I'm not mistaken. Dreams DreamWorks Films uh, made an animated uh, variant of this called The Road to El Dorado, which is also, the, the movie poster is also pictured on this slide. Uh, very similar uh, they're coming. They they're they're coming for the gold. See again. Here's this concept once again that these beings were here for gold, and then they stayed for the quote adventure. Um, and uh, uh, it's definitely a film worth checking out that has a lot of parallels with the interference theory. So we'll continue on the other side of the break, folks. Stay with us. We'll be right back. No dark sarcasm in the classroom Teacher, leave them kids alone Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening here on RBN. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. We're into the second hour of tonight's broadcast, continuing with the extended cosmic abandonment presentation. Tonight, we are talking about fictional allegories that recount the events of the ancient interference with our origins. And we were talking about the uh, films that kind of deal with the, uh, the two brothers, like The Man Who Would Be King and The Road to El Dorado by DreamWorks. The Road to El Dorado is, uh, has some interesting symbolism in it. You know, you look at the movie poster there and uh, the first words on it is, they came for the gold. You know, this whole concept of these beings coming here for gold as being some sort of a sought-after substance in the universe in general. I mean, you know, this is repeated in the uh, movie we're going to get to in a few moments, Dune, you know, but in that, it's the spice, and it could represent oil as well, but uh, it could also represent gold. You have the gold 
step pyramids in the uh, the movie poster, and you have the two brothers, one in blue, one in red. Again, Masonic colors here, Masonic connection, the two opposing colors on both ends of the spectrum, of the light spectrum, okay? Um, and... Uh, you know, you have the, they're both riding the white horse and he's holding up a bag of money, the one eye, tons of, uh, little, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge symbolism there. They're, you know, they're, they're the riders on the white horse. That's, you know, biblically, you know, in revelatory symbolism, that's death. You know, there's it's saying these beings brought death here. They brought, you know, the, the death of, uh, you know, our potential here. If we don't try to undo what they've done. Um, I think there's tons of symbolism right there just in the poster alone, not to mention the film. And I, again, as I was saying before the last break, I think it's definitely a film worth checking out, uh, certainly in conjunction with uh, its original counterpart, The Man Who Would Be King. Let's move on to the next slide, slide number 160. Again, you're going to see this two brothers theme repeated once again. And uh, in more modern times, the Thor movies. You had the first Thor movie and then you had Thor The Dark World. I really enjoyed both of these films actually and almost immediately recognized upon seeing them that this was going to be again another retelling of this ancient story of uh, brothers that had very profound impact on our world who came here from elsewhere. Their father, the king of their their world, Odin, you know, um, that that would be representing he would represent Anu again this is all Norse mythology and it's just a direct parallel to uh, Sumerian mythology okay but these are the stories that are essentially written about and told about these beings and their interactions with our planet so you know in the Norse mythology Odin is the creator god his sons are Thor and, and Loki again in the uh, Sumerian mythology, you have the, uh, uh, in the story of the Anunnaki, you have Anu, who is the king, and then you have the brothers Enki and Enlil. And in this allegorical uh, fiction of Thor, uh, Thor himself would represent the brother Enki, and Loki would represent Enki's brother Enlil. Again, Enlil wants to be the one who rules with an iron fist, um, Enki, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Enlil wanted to be the guy who ruled with the iron fist, and and Enki is the brother who, while he had the most direct interaction with human beings, wanted to see them helped and, and uplifted. Again, I've come forward and said, in no uncertain terms, do I think that that makes him the quote good guy. Uh, many people see it as such that he was such a great being and uh, you know tried to help people. I don't see the whole story like that. I have a pretty dark negative view of all of these beings, quite frankly, because once you start getting involved in messing with another race's evolutionary progression in the natural realm, uh, you've played the role of God. You've tried to usurp the role of the creator in nature. And so all of these beings were wrong. All of them were immoral. None of them were, were good guys. Were some of them somewhat better than other in their interactions with us? Yes, most certainly. Did some of them regret what had been done and try to negotiate the situation or mitigate it? Yes. Which again, in an unwanted 
pregnancy or an unwanted child situation, that is what a, a, a parent or parents who want to try to become responsible would do. So maybe Enki started looking at us in that regard, perhaps. Okay, uh, I have to keep an open mind when it comes to the whole, you know, recounting of these events that that may have very well been the case. Uh, Enlil, of course, is always basically uh, written about such that he really wanted to see humanity gone. Uh, he didn't didn't agree with the plan from its very inception and wanted us gone up until the point of the monstrous deluge that basically wiped out 90 plus percent of the population on this planet upon pockets of survivors uh, surviving that cataclysm the uh, Sumerian texts actually tell about even Enki's heart kind of being softened at that point and saying uh, along with some of his counterparts discussing the idea that perhaps fate itself or the God of creation itself may have one of these beings to remain alive and uh, propagate for some unknown purpose. And at that point, allegedly, Enki even backed off of his position that all the humans need to go. Um, if you accept those, uh, you know, those texts as being accurate. So the Thor movie unequivocally is a re counting of these ancient stories. And again, it all comes from Norse ideology, which has a direct parallel to, again, the original uh, Sumerian, Akkadian, Babylonian, um, you know, uh, etc. Uh, texts from the ancient uh, Middle East. So the Thor movies I definitely also recommend for uh, some uh, allegorical works and, uh, you know, not too bad action line stories from, from Marvel if you're into that kind of thing from a purely entertainment perspective. But um, the allegorical content is what I'm mostly interested in. Let's move on to the next slide. Slide number 161 in the presentation um, is The Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, Again, this is about genetic manipulation. This scientist slash doctor, played by Marlon Brando, uh, basically is creating um, animal-human hybrids, or what you would call chimeras, uh, by splicing their genes together and coming up with new species. This is exactly the story that the Anunnaki, uh, uh, that is told about the Anunnaki, and uh, this movie poster actually has these beings kind of like worshiping this hooded and enrobed being that has like a triangular shaped hat, like the all seeing eye, um, you know, this priest class type being, uh, who is the God of the Island. Well, what is the Island of Dr. Moreau? It is the earth. We are the genetic chimeras. We are the hybrids. And the, the caption on the poster says, through DNA experimentation, Dr. Moreau has upset the balance of nature. That's an understatement. He has turned animals into humans, and now heaven has turned into hell. So, ladies and gentlemen, we'll pick up exploring some of these allegories on the other side of this break. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening here on RBN. Stay with us, everyone. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
You know the day destroys the night Night divides the day Try to run, try to hide Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side Break on through to the other side, yeah Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. We're talking about fictional allegories that deal with the interference theory of human origins. And we were talking about The Island of Dr. Moreau. The movie poster is on slide number 161, if you're following along with the Cosmic Abandonment slide presentation images. Again, the um, story is about a doctor who, you know, wants to improve upon nature. He wants to be God, and he changes the genetic code of many beings and hybridizes them and turns them into human-animal chimeras, and the, the caption on the poster says, he has turned animals into humans, and now heaven has turned into hell. It's the story of our planet. Uh, what could have been sort of a uh, paradisical realm with evolution taking its course naturally uh, according to the natural evolutionary progression in nature was interfered with by a, a group of beings and you know they wanted to be God here and create uh, you know beings as they saw fit to create uh, which was again the usurpation of the place of the creator in nature and this is the argument that kind of went on between the brothers of uh, Enlil and Enki, and Enlil argued on the side of not performing these experimentations because that was uh, usurping the role of the creator of the universe itself. And, uh, it, you know, of course they went ahead with it anyway. And that's kind of, you know, what this allegory is about. The island of Dr. Moreau is the Earth, and, uh, you know, uh, Moreau is you could say Enki for uh, the one who actually conceived of and went forward with these experiments genetically. Uh, definitely um, an interesting film that uh, shows that um, it kind of uh, it probably isn't going to end well. Let's just say that. Um, to move on to slide number 162, this is the time machine. I didn't put this in the original uh, presentation and I kind of... Uh, you know, um, beat myself up over that, that I had left this out. This is probably one of the most important films that deals with this uh, topic allegorically because it's about a man who loses his wife, which is about the loss of the sacred feminine, and wants to reverse time. He wants to go back in time to prevent her death. What he finds out is that no matter how many times he, you know, makes it his absolute obsession to be able to build a time machine and go back in time and when he finally succeeds in going back in time he finds that he cannot prevent her death she die, she'll die in a billion different ways uh no matter how many times he goes back uh she doesn't you know he prevents her from dying the first way and then she dies another way and then he goes back again stops that death and yet she dies yet yet another way and the main overarching concept of the film is that once the, something has happened it can't be undone truth is what is and you you can't change that it's what has occurred and is occurring so you can't go back in time and have events undo themselves and that's part of dealing with what we would consider the linear notion of time 
Okay, we talked about how time's kind of an illusion. There's only the now, but in the now, that's where events happen, and then they're written into the record of creation, and that's it. You can't undo a past event. So this is what this film is saying, you know, esoterically when it's talking about the possibility of time travel. There is no possibility of going back in time and altering the past. The past is absolutely irrevocably set in stone because of the choices and the wave functions that those choices collapsed onto the present moment as that which has occurred. That's called the truth. So this film is talking about that very concept and what it, the, you know, aha moment of the film where the, you know, actual piece of enlightenment that it's trying to get forward to the uh, people uh, who are, you know, watching it for its allegorical content is what can be changed is the future because the future begins in the now. And that's what the main character finally realizes. Now, what he encounters in the far distant future is that humanity has basically been turned into a form of food for a genetically modified race, a genetically, uh, you know, quote unquote, superior race that evolved because the moon broke up and they had to go underground and essentially they developed these different traits and characteristics that made them almost like reptilian slash dinosaur type beings. Again, this reptilian theme comes up in a lot of these allegories as well. Uh, again, we talked about the possible appearance of these beings as having skin that looked somewhat reptilian, fish-like, or bird-like, scaly in other words, and that may have led to the whole, you know, cults of the serpent, the cults of the snake, etc., um, the veneration of the serpent and the snake throughout time religiously. In just about every culture anywhere on the earth at any time period, no matter how far you go back, as long as there have been humans. So um, in this particular uh, allegory, you have, um, and again, I, I just want to say I highly recommend the newer version, the 2002 edition of this film. Okay? You you could watch the original 1950-something version of the film, 60-something, I, I don't quite remember. But uh, I'm specifically talking about the 2002 edition, which I find, you know, the one that really has the effective allegory in it. And again, here's another film, folks, destroyed in movie reviews. Again, you'll see that theme pop up over and over and over and over. When they don't want you to recognize a film's allegorical content, guaranteed Hollywood, writers, reviewers, film critics, magazines, newspapers, journalists of all kind are going to come out of the woodwork and absolutely crucify a motion picture. If they're doing that in unison, go see that film. Because I guarantee you they're doing that for a reason because they want to cut off its popularity as quickly as possible so that uh, the, the vast amount of people say, it got horrible reviews, I'm not going to waste my money, I'm not going to go see that film. If, and even if you don't see it in the theater, see the film, download it, okay? Go on BitTorrent or wherever and grab the film and watch it, okay? You could easily find any of these films on 
wherever you want to search for them online. Any torrent site probably has most of these, Popcorn Time, stuff like that. They're easily findable, uh, you know, if you miss them in the theater or you don't own the DVD or Blu-ray disc, okay? Or you can go and if you want to buy them, buy them on, you know, wherever your favorite DVD site is. So my point here is the second incarnation of this film from 2002 is the one to watch and you could see this movie poster has this uh, very sinister looking being alien looking being which is this you know genetically modified uh, being from the future that uh, is essentially these beings like eat the people of the earth they use them as food as resources and uh, the one race uh, is the Morlock and then the race that they control and eat and dominate is the Eloy. And what this uh, character, the hero of the film, uh, wants to do is try to free the Eloy from their suppression and domination by the Morlock and try to make them aware, hey, you're not even resisting. You're just being eaten by these, by these beings. And finally, when he recognizes that what he can do is change the future by what he's doing in the now, he steps up into the moment and starts to offer resistance against these beings. It's a, it's a very decently put together film, and I think it really um, shows the whole concept of the predation of, of humanity by these beings that came here from elsewhere. So uh, definitely worth checking out the new version of The Time Machine. Stay with us, everyone. More allegories on the other side. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. We're talking about allegories that deal with the interference theory of human origins, and we were discussing the time machine. What I find interesting in the 2002 version of the time machine is the uh, Morlocks kind of um, uh, control their their, uh, enforcers through a form of mind control, and you'll see this repeated as well, and this is all about, you know, the... the, uh, uh, dark occultists who ultimately are ruling in on this world, who are the progeny of these beings that came here from elsewhere, uh, they rule their house slaves called the police and the military through mind control. You know, they're just basically telling people exactly what's going on in the world through this allegory and um, the discussion that the... Uh, high-level Morlock, the the super Morlock-type being, you might say, uh, that is the really advanced one, um, the discussion that he has with the main character toward the end of the film is uh, very, uh, very interesting, that he talks about how, you know, they would be even more vicious barbarians if we didn't control them with, you know, through their mind. You know, it's talking about that's what uh, order followers are like. Order followers are absolute animal barbarians with absolutely no conscience whatsoever that would, you know, eat their neighbors, basically, you know, and exhaust their food supply. Uh, it's just, uh, I personally agree with the sentiments put down by the S- Super Morlock in that movie regarding 
the people that he's really talking about as being, you know, absolute sick, demented, monster type, uh, uh, having a monster type mentality, because that's what order followers are. They're the ultimate evil. And um, uh, the the movie does a pretty good job explaining that element of mind control. I'm going to kind of talk about that a little bit when I talk about Deep Space Nine coming up. So I'm going to move a little bit faster here and try to go through some of these because I want to get to your calls soon. Uh, The next slide is 163, and this deals with the movie Dune, also one of my favorite films, also got crushed in the reviews, somewhat B-movie-ish. The novels by Frank Herbert are great. Um, It's a very high-level spiritual allegory. The main character, Paul Atreides, uh, is sent with his family to live on a planet where spice mining is the big thing. This spice melange is the huge thing in the galaxy. Perhaps this is about gold. Again, some people see it as oil. You see the recurring theme of beings coming to another planet to take resources from them. This is repeated over and over and over again. And you uh, see, you know, the again, the robed royal type figure with the triangle shape behind them in the archway. Stargate is another film. Again, I didn't put that in this uh, round of, of slides, but, you know, Stargate's another film that has a lot of these similar topics. You know, you have the god Ra in Stargate, who's ruling on another planet and taking the resources of these people, bringing them aboard his ship, um, you know, ruling as a god when he's just an alien being. And, um, you know, they travel back and forth through stargates and, and ships. So uh, there's so many films that, that deal with this type of stuff. All have, again, bits and pieces of the story. Different aspects of the story are involved. In Dune's case, it is largely about the resource mining. And it's all also dealing with, you know, that you have to actually... Uh, fight these people on a mental level and change your mental vibration if you're going to rise above and see through all their mind control. So, powerful themes in Dune. Uh, I can't recommend that film enough either. Let's look at the next slide. Slide number 164, Avatar. I think it's still the top grossing film of all time, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that. But uh, this film just absolutely blew up when it came out. People intuitively recognize the allegory of this film as being an allegory for going into a less developed area, region, a less technologically advanced civilization, you know, just taking their resources by force, similar to what we do to other third world nations. And that's basically what it's about. But it could also be interpreted to be about the beings who came here in the ancient past and took over uh, this planet. Um, Again, an all-new world awaits is the subtitle. These uh, blue creatures, again, that's another big theme in the recounting of these stories. Many of these um, stories talk about humanity as being blue beings, you know, as being the blue monkeys you hear them referred to as, the Sumerians referred to them as the... um, referred to humanity as the Lulu race, the Lulu species, which meant worker race or primitive worker, okay? Um, And again, uh, the humans in Avatar represent the 
alien consciousness that comes to another world and basically takes it over and exploits the beings as and their resources. Uh, very powerful allegory. People, I think, resonated with it at a very deep spiritual level, and that's why it became so popular, even though many people didn't really outwardly understand the allegory when this film came out. Uh, again, I highly recommend the film. I think it was brilliantly done, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to see them come out with uh, you know a sequel or something like that, you know, to continue the story. But um, Avatar is just, I think, a great allegory about um, you know uh, one highly advanced technological civilization basically coming in and pillaging uh, a less advanced one. Uh, along those lines, the the trilogy the matrix of course which i broke down extensively in my matrix trilogy decoded presentation uh is all about um another consciousness ruling humanity and enslaving it in the in this case in the form of ai being beings artificial intelligence you know robotics etc and again this could be interpreted as an allegory for these beings keeping us in a state of mind control enslavement being used as human resources, exploiting us just as a resource for the energy that they require and need, using us as slaves, you know, and again, the idea is to come out of their matrix of mind control, that's the way you're going to really recognize truth and stop being acting like a slave. Brilliant um, allegorical trilogy, not enough can be said about it for people who haven't watched all three of them and don't really deeply understand all three of them. Uh, you need to watch them all, not just the first one. The first one is the one that's popular. The second ones, the second and third are not nearly as popular because they're much less understood than even the first one. The first movie answers the question, what is the matrix? The, ma the answer is control, slavery, of course. Uh, the second film answers the question, um, uh, how did the matrix basically come to be? Why are we in the matrix? And the answer to that question is we don't understand the laws of causality, or in other words, we don't understand natural law. We don't understand the law of freedom, how morality is inextricably linked to the manifestation or the lack of manifestation of freedom in any given society. And the third movie answers the question, how do we get out of the matrix? Which is what is, what kind of persistence and sacrifice is going to be required to ultimately undo the situation that we are in. The, these films are such high-level spiritual truth that I don't even, I personally don't even really believe that the Wachowski brothers were the driving force behind the allegorical spiritual knowledge of these films. I could be wrong about that, you know, people will disagree and debate that. People talk about Sophia Stewart as writing the kind of predecessor, the framework for, for this trilogy and not being kind of credited for that. I don't really know what to make of that situation either, although I'm open-minded to, you know, hearing or reading about it. But the thing that strikes me as highly interesting, just as a brief aside regarding The Matrix that I didn't really cover in my presentation on it, is that... When you look at the Wachowski's brothers' contract with, uh, I, I think it was Village Roadshow Films, they're forbidden to do, ever do any interviews about this film. Now, why would a movie company forbid the so-called writers of a film ever to discuss the film publicly for like the duration of their natural lives? 
to me, I think it's because they wouldn't be able to tell anybody what the film is really about because probably they were just kind of like, you know, puppets put up to put this out under some, some kind of pseudonyms or whatever. And, you know, again, I could be wrong about that. I could be, you know, um, not really seeing the situation accurately when it comes to these brothers, but um, I personally don't really think... If somebody puts out a work of art like this, which is what this is, it's a, it's a work of al alchemical art, the Matrix series, and then they don't ever want to talk about it for the rest of their lives, something's wrong there. Something isn't right there, folks. That's all I have to say. So... Uh, I'll wrap up on the other side, uh, the allegories, and then we'll get to your calls coming up on this edition of What on Earth is Happening. Stay with us, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. I'm going to wrap up this segment, uh, these spiritual allegories that we've been talking about, dealing with the intervention theory of human origins. I just have a few more to put forward. Slide number 166, uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I would say the entire series deals with this entire concept allegorically, especially once it transitions into... Um, dealing with the Dominion, this race from the other side of a wormhole or a Stargate. Again, you see the Stargate theme repeated over and over again throughout these spiritual, these fictional allegories as well. Um, not only in the film Stargate, you know, you have the, um, the movie Thor dealing with the Rainbow Bridge, you know, the uh, Bifrost, as it was called in the Norse mythology. You know, this is an allegory for a Stargate. Um, and the, the uh, Deep Space Nine station is positioned in front of a stargate or a wormhole, a stable wormhole that con connects two quadrants of the galaxy in this um, you know, uh, incarnation of, of Star Trek. And these beings, the founders, depicted here on the lower left-hand side of the image uh, in orange there, they're shapeshifters. Again, you often hear the beings uh, that came here in the ancient past being depicted or... Uh, uh, recounted in these stories as being shape-shifting or uh, having the capability of morphing their appearance at a genetic level. And you hear these stories by modern researchers, researchers I'm sorry, uh, of course David Icke being uh, one of the most popular ones that discusses this topic uh, of shape-shifting. And in the film, again, you see this tight level of control over their house slave minions once again by pumping them full of drugs and the drug that they give them is known as white and what this is is an allegory about adrenaline that the beings that act as the house slaves for the real controlling class are adrenal junkies and adrenaline is probably the substance that will destroy the human neocortex faster than any other substance because when the adrenal response is going what happens is large quantities of blood are quickly pumped away from the brain 
to put you into what's known as the fight or flight modality, the fight fight or flight response, in which case the extremities need to be blood filled and hardened to deal with the threat. In, in the case of fighting the threat, fight response, the upper extremities or the arms have to be hardened and rigid with blood because you're going to actually use them for combat purposes. In the example of the flight response where you're going to try to escape the um, uh, dangerous encounter with a, a predator or something else that may be happening, the blood has to harden the lower extremities, the legs, so that you can flee uh, and therefore survive. In this case, the torso is largely, the internal organs are largely, blood, richly oxygenated blood is pumped away from the torso and the internal organs. And that's why if you're in, in a constant state of amped up, you know, high, uh, you know, uh, tension, stress, consciousness, or unconsciousness as the case would be, um, you're going to develop internal organ problem, body, body problems, health problems. And of course, the brain isn't going to function properly because blood is pumped, richly oxygenated blood is also pumped away from the brain in that uh, biophysiological response circumstance of fight and flight, fight or flight mechanism response. So th this is a, a great you know, allegory for the the, the so-called controllers, the, o o the o obedient order followers who think they're in control, uh, but are just basically adrenal junkies and hopped up on stuff that is probably the most dangerous substance in the world called adrenaline, that if you're on it constantly, will basically burn your brain. Not to mention burn your health out. These people die of heart attacks all the time. It's the number one leading cause of death in people in the control industry, whether it be police or military. Heart attacks is what most of them die from because, you know, one, they don't have true care and that affects the heart at a spiritual level. And two, you know, this flight flight response constantly going off in them, you know, destroys the heart, you know, and it certainly destroyed their brain a long time ago, I'll tell you that much, you know. And like I said, you know, you, you, you get offended by my, you know, flat-out harsh statements when it comes to things like that. Um, get as offended as you want, folks. Uh, it's not going to stop. It's probably, that rhetoric is probably going to be amped up, if anything else, uh, after I cover this, this topic in the coming weeks. Uh, much more is to come on order followers in general. I'm probably going to even prepare an entire presentation on the uh, the evil that is order following. So just a couple more briefly. Uh, this is the last slide that I'm going to talk about tonight, but I do have two other films I just want to briefly mention. Um, so we're on slide 167, which deals with Battlefield Earth, and I'll leave that for last. I want to talk about Jack the Giant Slayer just briefly. It's a film about giants, and again, a bridge connection from the earth the heavens to the earth in the in the uh, form of the beanstalk this is a retelling of the uh, jack and the beanstalk um, uh, mythology and uh, you know he deals with giants and having to reclaim uh, sovereignty from them very very interesting uh, film um, that I definitely recommend for people dealing with this topic also the movie Noah that just came out with Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly uh, absolutely is about the factions of so-called angels 
uh, the Enlil faction and the Enki faction being the uh, uh, angels that were serving the Creator and helping Noah and his kin versus the angels that were uh, serving Tubal Cain and his kin, uh, which were the fallen angels, the fallen ones, Nephilim, etc. Uh, a brilliant allegory as well, plus a lot of the themes about uh, second chances, can people change, you know, is there good left in humanity, are powerfully brought out in the film. Uh, I absolutely recommend the new Noah film. Uh, you have to set aside any kind of literal interpretations or traditionalist interpretations of the flood uh, mythos in general and uh, look at it from the perspective of uh, ancient aliens and um, uh, interference theory if you're going to get uh, a lot out of it allegorically. However, the film that is the story of the ancient interaction with the beings that came here and created humanity and put us to work as a slave species is Battlefield Earth. Written by L. Ron Hubbard of Scientology fame. But whatever else you think about Hubbard regarding the religion that uh, he put forward in the name of Scientology, in the form of Scientology, which was originally Dianetics and then I feel co-opted completely because of the information it was talking about dealing with the reactive mind. And then, you know, it got morphed into a religion to basically um, get, get people away from looking at some of the uh, positive aspects of, of Dianetics, then they came in with Scientology and turned it into a ridiculous religion. Um, aside of what you think about uh, Hubbard personally, he had knowledge dealing with the ancient past, certainly, and he is telling this in a future uh, version where it happens in the future, but really what he's talking about is the, is the ancient past of, of Earth. And this is the film that I think most accurate, accurate accurately portrays what really occurred here or something similar to what really occurred and probably uh, accurate, accurately portrays some of these beings and how they may have looked with their conical shaped heads and large stature. Uh, certainly like, you know, nine to 12 feet tall beings, easily lifting men, throwing them around. Uh, very advanced technology, putting men to work to mine gold. Uh, this film was utterly crushed in film reviews and in the theaters. Flopped horribly. Is it a B-movie? Yes, it is. Is it cheesy in some parts? Yes, it is. Is the acting hammy in, in many parts or most parts? <laughs> John Travolta's in the film, folks. Okay? <laughs> you know, so... Uh, you're not. We're not looking at this film for Academy Award acting potential. We're looking at what is the allegorical content of the storyline. And if you watch it for that, this film will blow you away. It's as good as they live, or if not better, in many respects. And I love the solution, folks. The solution is knowledge. It's presented in the film that unless we get knowledge of the enemy, of who we're really dealing with, of their tactics, of their mentality. We're not going to make progress toward freedom. An ignorant society is an enslaved society. Ladies and gentlemen, your calls in the third and final hour coming up. Stay with us. Oh, silence. 
don't dare speak There's a wall between us And a river so deep We keep pretending That there's nothing wrong There's a code of silence And it can't go on Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. I'm going to be taking your calls in this hour. The toll-free number to join us, 800-313-9443. Once again, toll-free number to join us here on What on Earth is Happening for the third hour, 800-313-9443. Phone lines are lit up, so uh, I'm going to get right to it. There are no taboo topics. You could talk about anything you want, ask anything you want, comment about anything you want, or if you want to bring up any uh, allegories that uh, portray the intervention theory of human origins that I may have missed or comment about the ones I already discussed, you're free to do that as well. So let's see what people have to say this evening. Let's go to the phones and hear from Brandon in Boston. Brandon, you're live on What on Earth is Happening. Welcome. Hey, Mark. Thanks for taking my call. Big sure. time. Um, yeah, just uh, some really great movies you mentioned there. Um, just wanted to um, maybe mention a few more. Sure, go right ahead. Uh, all right. Um, I would say people look into the um, works of Stanley Kubrick. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's required viewing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you know, I mean, all his movies. um, Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. 2001 and 2010, yeah. Brilliant films. Yep, and he, you know, he also co-wrote those films, Clockwork Orange. Yep. Very interesting stuff. Um, Oh, let's not forget Eyes Wide Shut. I mean, you want want a... uh, uh, fictional uh, tale about what's really going on in the world as far as the influence of the dark occult. That's it. And a lot of people think that uh, Kubrick may have been, uh, de- you know, deliberately murdered for the making of that film and, you know, how he portrayed the elite in that, especially the footage that ended up on the cutting room floor even after he was told that he had final edit of the film. Uh, the movie studio, you know, basically uh, went back on on that agreement uh, and uh, took out footage which uh, many people feel may have portrayed uh, pedophilia within these groups. Oh, yes, and the connection between um, L. Ron Hubbard and, um, you know, Scientology and the OTO. Sure. Uh, uh, or the, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, because you have the Marine... Lucy Deuces and Nicole Kidman um, and all that kind of thing and everybody I mean just look at the allegories there Um, and and a lot of synchromysticism in there as well yeah oh yeah and and just the names and that was one of my questions as you said I think in the past show a few weeks ago you said you could break down the the name Bill Uh, oh yeah could you do that maybe uh, I w- I've been thinking about doing a special presentation on that. Like I kicked around like the the comical, somewhat comical title of uh, "There is only one God and His name is Bill." I mean, if you see how the name Bill or the phonetic variation of simply the characters B and L, 
have been used by the dark occult over the centuries. It's absolutely astounding and amazing because that's that was the name of their god in the ancient world. The ancient Phoenicia Canaan dark sun god was Bill or or Bell, and many people know him by you know the variant Baal, B A A L. You know, so there's tons of examples of this in in culture. I mean, you know, you just look at what's the 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 god the symbolic God that these beings basically put right in, in front of their, their altar of money on wall street is the bull. You know, you, you have this whole BL phonetic variant, you know, regardless of what vowel sound is in the middle of it repeated. I could literally go on and on and on and on. And I'm probably going to put together this presentation. Like I said, I'm going to call it there's only one God and his name is Bill. And it'll be a, a little comical title, but just to, you know, pique people's uh, interest and say, hey, what, what's this guy on about talking about Bill as being the name of God? And uh, I'll, br I'll break some of this uh, uh, wordplay and symbolism down in, in a presentation. It's something I've been, you know, basically kicking around the idea of doing. Uh, maybe uh, uh, I really wanted to want to put some presentations here together in Philadelphia and uh, bring some people here, you know, like small gatherings, you know, not a whole conference, maybe me and another speaker, something like that, and just do it locally here at a venue in Philadelphia. And I'll just throw this out here on, on the air while we're on the topic. If anybody has any venue space in the area uh, in or around Philadelphia, I'd very much appreciate that they contact me if they'd be willing to, uh, you know, uh, work out an arrangement for, you know, a reasonable cost to uh, rent a place to do a, a present, an all-day presentation, like, you know, from like maybe nine to five or nine, nine to eight o'clock at night, something like that, like what we did in Connecticut. You know, I'm, I'm looking for an active venue in Philly because there's just not many places that are willing to host something like this. So I just wanted to throw that out there, but that concept of uh, the the dark occultist god being named Bill, Baal, Bell, the Bull, etc., is something I'm definitely going to work up a future presentation on. Definitely something local of Philadelphia too, because you have William. Of course, Bill's right on the uh, the big phallic symbol that presides over this city. Absolutely, yep, and he's pointing, and also um, the little right sure i see that as a more positive aspect of it because there was the positive aspect of bell the sun you know you have to understand when you're dealing with solar symbolism as i broke down in my uh demystifying the occult presentation the sun's always been a symbol of knowledge light spiritual enlightenment etc and truth uh, and the, you know the the essence of the divine uh, at work in the world and within us, but there is a dark side to the sun. That's when knowledge is perverted and used to control people. When you keep certain people in ignorance, and then one group hoards all the knowledge and uses that as a weapon uh, to control those who are still in ignorance of that knowledge, which is what dark occultism is all about. So the 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 Bell God or Bill God had this dualistic aspect just like in egyptian culture you have the the three different aspects of the sun god and many other aspects as well but three main aspects the rising sun horus uh, amen ra which is at its zenith of light the high point of light at noon and then the setting god the dark sun set 
So, you know, it's this whole concept of darkness and light, but they both are about knowledge and how it is used. So I want to, I'll also emphasize that when I eventually get around to making this presentation on the, uh, the sun god named Bill. Awesome. And um, also your breakdown of The Wizard of Oz, I would highly recommend. The movie Dark City, um, which also critics ignored. Uh, the very old German film, Metropolis. Oh, yes. Oh, occult symbolism rich throughout that film. You know, very dystopic, um, very ahead of its time, for sure. Yep, and you can, it's right on Netflix. Um, and uh, another, uh, In the Holy Mountain by Alejandro Jordaf. Absolutely. Um, one of the, probably one of the best pieces of cinema. Yeah, generally about the, the spiritual journey in, in general. And uh, I highly recommend that one as well. And um, uh, this is just my question. Um, sure. He also uh, did a thing. Uh, he almost made Dune, by the way. He almost made his own version of Dune. Oh, wow. as a on it. Oh, uh, I, I just want to mention real quick, since you brought up Dune, I really recommend Dune 2000, which I think was a, uh, an extended like TV movie uh, on Dune. And that uh, actually tells the story even better than the original Hollywood film. Um, and I think the the characterization is better, and the the plot line just it's just a much better put together film from a, uh, a storytelling perspective. Yep, and I would say George Lucas's THX maybe his first first film. movie he ever made. Absolutely. My question was going to be on H.P. Lovecraft and the next Comic-Con. Brandon, thanks so much for the suggestions, my friend. We have to jump to break, ladies and gentlemen. Stay with us. More of your calls coming up. back everyone you're listening to what on earth is happening we're taking your calls in this final hour of the broadcast for this evening call in number to join us 800-313-9443 i want to thank brandon for his call in the last segment and i'm going to move on to chris in canada chris you are live on what on earth is happening welcome hey mark um, the, the, the first thing I want to ask is, uh, are you familiar with, uh, Myron C. Fagan? I am not. Okay. Well, he, he, this, I wasn't either. He, uh, uh, can, can you spell the name for me? Myron, M-Y-O-N. Okay. C. Fagan. F-A-G-A-N. Okay. And what what does uh, his work deal with? Well, what what he had to do with is uh, the Illuminati and the CFR, and he recorded on vinyl disc. If you're familiar with that, sure. Uh, uh, the Illuminati and the CFR. He did this in 1967, and he recorded it on vinyl disc so that people would 
be able to to hear it. Um, I know you know with most most of the listening audiences, they're not they're not familiar with vinyl disc. Sure, I mean it's you know an older form of uh, media, but by today's yeah. standards, certainly. Yeah. But it was yeah. around in my time, starting to fade as I was uh, getting into music, but uh, still there. Still there today. I mean, you know, a lot, a lot of people prefer it because of its uh, audio fidelity. But uh, uh, w- what did he really get into when he, uh, you know, uh, exposed well, well, the information that he you, And this, this, is, this is what I really found fascinating. In 1967, he was trying to tell us about um, 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 uh, the takeover uh, of our governments in, in, in the whole world and, and, and a new world government. And this is in 1967. What I find, what I find really um, uh, to, uh, well, I just find it amazing that this man can do the research sure. that we we couldn't do back then. I couldn't do it. Oh, there there were people I still there were people research. still doing it according to the old methods. You know, call it's called it was called going into research libraries and you know actually doing your homework in books. You know, we have it easy now. We could we could download whole books. You know, we could download whole libraries practically. Um, you know, video supplementation documentaries. Audio presentations. I mean, you know, the the information is all widely available. It's just people largely don't want it. Um, so, looks like this guy was well ahead of his time, and I will absolutely have to check out uh, his material. Uh, I will uh, listen to it. Okay. Well, it's Myron C. Fagan. Excellent. And uh, yeah, j- totally amazing. I mean, it bl- it'll blow your mind. Fantastic. He's talking about everything that's happening now, back in 1967. Sure. Yeah, you know, people I, people were in. They, they knew about the plan. You know, they they knew that this was actively at work in the world. I mean, you look at researchers like Gary Allen. How long ago he told people about the things that were coming and has been uh, absolutely accurate on. So um, there's many people like this who are visionaries of their day, not listened to, and uh, yet they're being uh, proven right by what's the, the actual events playing out in our world uh, in current times. So uh, Chris, I want to thank you for your suggestion. I'm definitely going to follow up on that. So thank you so much for the call. Let's move on and hear from Kevin in Philadelphia. Kevin, you're live on What on Earth is Happening. Welcome to the show. Hey, hi again, Mark. It's Kevin. Um, Good to hear Thank from you, you as always. Um, I, I wanted to mention that you brought up Dune earlier, and it was brought up again, uh, so I wanted to touch on that first, but I have one other thing that I thought was synchronous with what you were saying earlier as well. Sure, go right um, ahead. The God Emperor Dune book was like the fourth book in the series, and um, that was never really made a movie into. Like you had mentioned they did like three films just recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like the first three books yes. all it together by sci-fi. And it was great, but they never did the fourth book. And the fourth book, as far as I'm concerned, was actually the most important of all of the stories because it was like how they defeated the God Emperor of Dune. Right. That the, and, and 
like uh, not like this is kind of a spoiler alert uh, for people who don't who want to read the book, but like. Oh, no worries. I, I've been spoiling movies all night, so, you know, just okay. go right ahead and, and talk about it as long as, you know, you're you're going to uh, bring up a good point regarding the allegorical content. Go right ahead. Uh, it's perfect, actually. Like, I'll, uh, very simply put, the God Emperor literally beat down humanity until humanity finally understood that the only way to take him out was to become responsible for itself. Imagine that, Kevin. Yeah. Wow. What a novel <laughs> so concept like there, Emperor. huh? <laughs> yeah. God Emperor was like the state, like the ultimate embodiment of the state, and yep. it, it just, the only way that humanity was ever able to finally defeat him, well, he always had this one moment that was like in his future that like he never, like he always kept his death from himself, like even though he had the ability to see into the future. Right. Um, he kept that moment from himself, and essentially it all came to like a head where like humanity rose up, um, and then in, in in combination with rising up against those ultimate powers, they also rose up for themselves in such a way that they took responsibility for each other, and and kind of created their own new. Uh, their own new paradigm right essentially. coming together was, as like one, one human yes. family kind of right yes yes yep. uh, not everyone did uh some people like ran away and that became like the second or the the fifth and sixth novels right. that frank herbert out because that was them those people then coming back but the this main arching story itself was all about how humanity literally had to become responsible enough for itself to finally stand up for itself to take on the, the God Emperor. Absolutely. And they do it. I mean, that's the key. You know, total freedom with total freedom comes total responsibility. And, you know, it's it's amazing how, like, you know, something like the Dune franchise, they never really tried to pursue a lot of these topics in, in movies. And just like that first movie fail, you know, basically flopped in Hollywood and no one ever came back and tried to... Uh, you know, to retell these stories in a in a way that would get people really interested in them, it's 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 pretty much a shame, I think. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I want to throw at you was um, you asked uh, things that you may have missed, and I always thought it was really important. That whole I I, I found it really amusing that uh, there was this guy named Alalu who <laughs> fought against Anu yes. before they ever like left the for, planet for and kingship, like according to these uh, yes, kingship legends exactly yes. exactly in the enki in the books of enki and in in one of them specifically it was like a wrestling match that they had together uh and that they fought together on on the other planet to start out with and that's actually what when he when everybody went to congratulate anu for winning Alalu left, like and he took to, off. And went to Earth, and that's when he discovered yeah. that Earth had the resources that they needed. Exactly. Yeah, and very interesting point. And I just thought that was interesting. These myself. little details and gems are in a lot of these uh, recountings of these ancient stories. I definitely recommend people check it out. We're going to get into that in future weeks on the show, too. Ladies and gentlemen, stay with us. We'll be right back. No education. 
everyone you're listening to what on earth is happening here on republic broadcasting i'm your host mark passio my website whatonearthishappening.com we're taking your calls in this third hour of the broadcast tonight toll free number to join us 800-313-9443 i want to say thanks to kevin who called in in the last segment and we're going to move on to hear from michael in pennsylvania michael you're live on what on earth is happening welcome Hi, Mark. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, my question regards uh, they live. Uh, I'm sure you've noticed at the scene where um, Roddy Piper, whose character is Nada, yes. and um, his co-worker are walking into the building, a building which is like the meeting place, and on the wall, on the brick wall, is, <laughs> is number 93. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I love it. I, I love the little uh, nods that you get in the film like that. It's uh, it's kind of like what led, uh, lends to the charm of the film as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you think that has anything to do with um, the C part 93 current, which I believe is a, a polemic, Aleister Crowley, um, you know, philosophy? And I know you've talked about 93 in, on the dollar bill and in 9-11, which blew my mind, totally sure. blew my mind. Oh, uh, it, it absolutely is a reference to Thelema and what Crowley referred to as the Aeon of Horus, which is when humanity would begin to emerge from the mind control slumber that it's under. A lot of people erroneously believe that Crowley's um, Aeon of Horus was about the, the dark new world order coming in and taking over. That, is, that was what Crowley referred to as the Aeon of Set, and the Aeon of Horus would be when knowledge and enlightenment would be being born in humanity and they would start breaking their chains and getting out of mental bondage. That's what the Aeon of Horus referred to thalamically uh, in the, in the uh, philosophy of Thalema. So um, clearly, um, uh, you know, the, the movie They Live is about slavery versus freedom, you know, and uh, how the mind is either controlled or it's either free. And Carpenter clearly was somewhat studied in Thalamic philosophy and threw the number 93 in there deliberately. I'd be highly, highly um, shocked if that weren't a deliberate reference to Thalema in general. Um, If it were just an example of synchromysticism, I'd be pretty amazed by that, personally. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Um, What... uh what, what do you think of, of I mean, what do you think of uh, the, the teachings of Poema and uh, also the Order of the Golden Dawn um, as a practice? You know, in other words, ritual magic of the light right. variety right. as a not only a tool of personal transformation but also kind of the defense. I don't personally discount it, but I also don't personally really practice it. 
Um, it's not just an aspect that I've gotten into because I just feel like the mental and spiritual aspects of awakening are just so much more important to free the mind of uh, illusion and delusion and you know not and just stop accepting things that aren't true or real is so much more important than trying to perform conjurations or calling down certain energies etc that um, I mean there are people who would disagree with that and think that there's a lot of importance to it but this is kind of where I delineate um, what I would call mysticism from true occultic teachings, from true occultism, which is hidden knowledge regarding the human psyche and the laws of nature and how those things work in tandem with each other to create the reality that we experience. Um, I see mysticism as simply sets of practices that have uh, a ascribed spiritual intention or intent or frame of reference or you know goal and um, uh, kind of leaves knowledge a little bit more at the door when it comes to natural law or uh, just knowledge of self, uh, you know, deep uh, introspection of the human psyche and the understanding of the different aspects and motivations within all of us. So um, that's kind of my line that where I delineate between mysticism and occultism, and I explain this in my Demystifying the Occult seminar, which uh, I just want to let people know it will be available shortly. Again, uh, when Richard is finished editing it, he'll be publishing it. Uh, you know, no rush on it. I know he's going to do a brilliant job, and uh, again, we always thank him for the work that he does, especially with the you know his tragedyandhope.com website, of course, linked on what on earth is happening, and. Uh, you know, the, the great, um, podcasts and videos that he's done and put out, uh, just some of the best work out there as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, he's going to be editing that footage and, uh, putting it out shortly. So, uh, you know, look for that. It'll be up on my YouTube channel. It'll be up on my website. Uh, I'll mention it of course on the show, but, uh, this is the kind of stuff I got into a little bit in the, uh, presentation. It's, you know, I kind of talked about it in a rudimentary way, but I still did cover this uh, type of stuff that, that you're talking about, uh, here on, in this question. So, uh, I think you'd find that part of the, uh, seminar, uh, pretty interesting. And if you want to know a little bit more about my take on Thelema in general, my, uh, main recommendation to you where I could, uh, you know, cover it on a future what on earth is happening, uh, show, uh, I would, uh, you know, like people to go and check out in my news section when I did the, um, uh, show with, um, Bob from Cincinnati on Occult Empire. We covered uh, Crowley's life in general, his writings, the Thelemic, the basic principles of the Thelemic philosophy. I didn't get super in-depth, but it covers the general points, and uh, I think I did a pretty good job in that, uh, in that interview, so I, I recommend that one to people when uh, it comes to this topic. Oh, okay. Um, and I have one movie that um, sure. it's... Uh, has to do with the, um, I think it has to do with the inter intervention theory, and that is uh, The Fountain, directed by Darren Aronofsky. Oh, what a great film. I mean, I can't specifically say that it deals with intervention theory, but that is a brilliant spiritual allegory that de does deal with, you know, true awakening and, you know, getting to the place of recognizing sovereignty. You know, uh, just a, a, a really powerful psychedelic film. I mean, that is a a mind trip for sure that film you know oh, uh, yeah the, no, real good suggestion there. 
Is that the same movie? Were you talking about Noah as a, um, a new movie? Because that's yep. the latest movie. Now, that one definitely is about intervention theory, without any question. Oh. You know, that talks about the fallen angels, you know. These these were the Nephilim. These were the beings that were, you know, the, the progeny of the Anunnaki. And, you know, in this film, they're depicted as rock beings because they were originally beings of light and spirit who then had been encrusted by the earth for coming here and interfering with humanity's natural progress progression of evolution according to the real creator of the universe and you know the beings that are sent by the creator the creator quote-unquote is Enki that's the Enki faction in this film and then the beings that support the rock beings or, or uh, fallen angels who support uh, the Tubal Cain character are that's Enlil's faction so you know if you look at it with fresh eyes knowing the story of the ancient human past as we've laid it out here um, you really can uh, can see this film as uh, really being a um, a battle uh, for humanity, and it's it's uh, between the Enki faction and the Enlil faction of quote unquote angels or Anunnaki beings or Nephilim beings. It's uh, it, it was I think really well put together. The allegory is pretty veiled because of the way they depicted these beings and not showing them as you know they anything like what they really looked like. Uh, it's very symbolic, but um, it upset a lot of people who, uh, you know, follow the Bible in a literal, from a literal perspective because they don't understand all these different aspects that were being brought up in this film because they don't know the real, you know, story of uh, interference theory of our origins, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so it, the part in the fountain, uh, as far as, like, them defeating death, could that be something that has to, you know, because we're, maybe our DNA was programmed to live short lives deliberately? I mean, it, it could be something regarding that. I think it's a little bit more symbolic to mean that you're you're conquering the things that really hold you down. And uh, the whole, you know, death card in the tarot isn't so much about physical death as it is the force that counteracts evolutionary progression. Or in other words the entropic force is the death force. And I think that's what they're talking about. We can counteract that force of entropy at work if we align ourselves with the syntropic force, which is the will of creation. So, Michael, I want to thank you for uh, those points that you raised. Really great stuff. And uh, we'll continue with your calls in the last segment, folks. Stay with us. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day. Try to run, try to hide, break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side, break on through to the other side, yeah. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to What on Earth is Happening. I'm your host, Mark Passio. My website, whatonearthishappening.com. Last segment for tonight's show. We're taking your calls. Let's move on and go to another caller and hear from Steve in Pennsylvania. Steve, you're live on What on Earth is Happening. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Um, I just want to, first of all, compliment you on your work. I actually went to your one of your natural law seminars about a year ago. It was awesome. great. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I just want to let you know people are out here you know, doing something with um, the resource that you have because your website essentially is a database. 
and um, it's helped me with my progression as far as, you know, the occult and different things. And I'm actually working on a book right now called The Facade. So I'm just using, you know, some of the stuff that you helped me get a better understanding on and presenting that <coughs> as a resource. And see, that's what it's all about right there, folks. I mean, just listen to that. You know, it's somebody doing something with what they've come to understand. And they're putting it back out there for other people to learn from. That's taking action in the world. That's affecting people at a mental and spiritual level. That's what the great work's all about. So I commend you for that, Steve. That's that's getting on the battlefield, you know? Exactly. And there's something I want to present to you as a um, possible theory on uh, the human interference and I've been doing some study on the Hebrew language and just making what I call like a cross-reference so when you look at uh, blood in Hebrew uh, the letters that are used to spell blood are D and M and I don't know if you know but Hebrew actually has pictograms so the potential pictogram for D would be a, um, a tent door or a pathway and then with M it would be water or chaos so a potential, I guess you could say, esoteric definition for blood is pathway to chaos. And I'm just curious as to, you know, your feedback on that because, you know, whatever these things were or the whole human interference um, theory, I think blood had to, something had to do with that interference yeah. of blood in the human body because if you look at, like, disease and just different things that happen, um as an effect of having blood or losing blood, I think yep. that has something to do with um, the generative human body. It's also why certain blood types are completely incompatible, even when it comes to uh, pregnancy and human females in many cases. But um, I think uh, instead of interpreting it in a negative way like that, you could also look at that as meaning water door right which is the, uh, what a stargate is that if we exactly. go through right. the process of transforming our mind and coming out of the types of of epigenetic conditioning that we're under who knows how we could transform our actual physical selves genetically you know the dna is just a uh, an antenna receiver type thing that has to do with the type of consciousness that we're in. When we're at a point where we can direct our evolutionary development epigenetically, and this is something I'm going to talk about over the next couple of weeks as we move toward the end of the basic extended presentation, I'm again going to look at some ancient texts and you know put some information forward from these texts deliberately uh, displaying a lot of the interaction between uh, ancient humanity, early humanity, and these beings and you know put some evidence forward uh from these actual uh you know source accounts in coming weeks as well but uh i think what i'm going to do before i even start to get into that um is talk about epigenetics and how regardless of what was done to us genetically by these beings uh it isn't a hopeless situation because uh consciousness ultimately can change things even at a physical level i'm not saying we just you know magically wish ourselves into being a different type of creature but i'm saying that when our consciousness moves forward eventually the physiology follows suit and who knows what we'll be capable of or what latent capabilities that have been disconnected from us will be uh, taken out of their dormancy and reactivated at that point 
Uh, and the, to understand this, you really have to understand the relatively new science of epigenetics and how it works. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And it's, it's funny that you say that because the final chapter, because I've tried to keep the book, you know, not too long because I know, you know, a lot of people aren't going to read and do the research. So I don't want to, you know, deter them because the book is too long. But the, the final chapter of the book is um, entitled Destiny Unbound. And it's just kind of like when hum humanity wants to take the chains off and we want to recognize what goes on, uh, like you've been saying for a long time now, you know, the possibilities are, are endless. It's just collectively everybody has to do their part. Because That's right. Whether, whether people want to believe it or not, what they believe and what they do actually does affect other people because the whole earth is a community. That's right. And we are all interconnected. Up, yes. Right. And when people don't step up and do their part, they're, they're affecting what's going on in a positive or negative way, depending on what they, you know, what they do with their life, because ultimately the actions is what counts. What Steve, everybody is or isn't doing matters. Steve, you have a very firm handle on the situation, the whole dynamic that's going on. Uh, I'd be very interested in checking out, you know, the information you put out. And I, like I said, I commend you for getting on the battlefield and, and uh, sharing what you've come to understand because it definitely sounds like uh, you, you know what you're talking about when it comes to how uh, the dynamic of interconnectivity works within a species. Uh, it's something I've been trying to impress upon people, and uh, you've definitely expressed it pretty eloquently there. So I want to thank you uh, for the call and the insights that you've uh, put forward. Thank you. And the, my final word would be, um, it's not exactly a movie um, as far as like the human interference theory, but I think a movie everybody, you know, should watch that was way ahead of its time mm -hmm. is Network. Oh, sure. Network. Yeah. I mean, it, it's about using the dynamic of uh, righteous indignation to, to start speaking the truth out into the world and trying to create change in other people. Uh, without any question, Network is a brilliant allegory about the takeover of media and the mindset of the people and uh, how to get out of that mind control. Uh, so I, I would definitely recommend Network to anybody who's listening. Steve, thank you so much for the call. Really great points that you brought up there. Um, let's end the show with Ivan from Phoenix. Uh, tradition, right, Ivan? <laughs> Yeah, and I just got off work, so we got rid of all that background noise. All right, um, got, we got a little bit more time than last week, so what do you have for us tonight? Okay, well, trying to stay on topic, um, I just got home real quick and quickly picked through a whole bunch of my DVDs and Blu-rays here to pick uh, titles that might correlate with what this uh, what you're talking about tonight. So they might not all deal with the uh, origins or... Um, interference theory but they all deal with some beings having something to do with humanity sure. in the past or in the present or maybe even in the future sure so war of the worlds the remake with sure. even Spielberg and tom cruise even though the beings appear to come the devices were already here so that right. shows you know a timepiece there the uh, alien versus predator films those uh films showed how the predators we're using the aliens and humans way back before for their little ritualistic stuff. Interesting. So there's a little influence there. I haven't seen those. I'll have to check those out. Yep. And then we have James Cameron's other film, The Abyss, 
where they were being deep in the ocean yes. and they were watching what humans were doing oh, to the yes. earth. And absolutely, absolutely. Right? And this one's kind of hokey, but I've always liked the 1980 film Flash Gordon because sure. you have that being <laughs> the merciless way on another part of the galaxy right. and he's just messing with this planet just for, you know, right. his uh, personal amusement, you know? Could there be was, uh, uh, could, could be a little bit of an allegory like Anu on Nibiru, uh, if you accept the Sumerian uh, text uh, version, you know, controlling things from, uh, you know, another aspect of the galaxy. Mm-hmm, that's right. And then um, actual physical, uh, you know, manipulation, we had that Steven Spielberg miniseries called Taken. I loved Taken. Taken is a miniseries that people absolutely have to see about the kinds of cover-up that go on within the entire spectrum when it comes to non-human uh, interference with our species. Uh, I highly recommend it. Yep, and before we're done, there was a film called Knowing, K-N-O-W-I-N-G, with Nicolas Cage. Great movie. Ivan, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this edition of What on Earth is Happening. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, there's only two paths you could ever make on the path to truth. Not starting and not going all the way. Thanks for listening to What on Earth is Happening this week. We'll see you right here next week, folks. You have a great night.